I think that we should expect our political leaders to do what he is doing more often. Like, I think we have all internalized this idea in the last seven or eight years, especially, that like all politicians are snakes and all of them are just acting in their own self-interest and they're Machiavellian and, you know, maybe even sociopathic. And, uh, you know, all we should do is you know, expect them to act in their own self-interest and vote for the ones who uh, we agree with most, right? And I just think that's fundamentally wrong. Like, I think that actually most politicians came, went into office with a set of ideals and principles and that and, and functioning consciences. And we should expect political leaders sometimes to do what they think is right, even when it's politically inexpedient. Like even when it might mean the end of their political career, like in the case of Mitt Romney, I think that we should expect them to act on their conscience. And it, you know, that lesson only comes through if you believe that that political leaders actually do have a conscience. And I think what you see if you read this book is a man who is genuinely wrestling with his conscience often throughout his political career. And I think that's a good thing. It is time for another episode of The Cultural Hall, and uh, glad to welcome back here to The Cultural Hall, McKay Coppins. If you did not listen to episode 384, that is where we get to know all about McKay Coppins, who he is. You'll probably get a little sprinkling about who he is as we chat today, but that's not this interview. This interview is all about uh, his latest book, Romney. A reckoning. And I wish that I had like an echo, 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 echo as we go through this. Thank you for being here, sir. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, all right. So uh, we we are in a limited amount of time, so I'm getting straight to the point. Uh, what advantages are gained and what uh, are the disadvantages on having a book about Mitt Romney written by another member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? It's a good question. Um, it's funny because I've been covering Mitt Romney for a long time, and I first covered him during his 2012 presidential campaign. And uh, I was the only member of his faith on the campaign press bus, you know, like among the traveling reporters from national outlets who followed him around the country. I was the only Mormon. The other reporters would call me the Mormon Wikipedia because uh, <laughs> they would like ask me, you know, questions for the stories they were filing or whatever. Um, but what's weird is that in 2012, in some ways, it was actually a disadvantage that I shared his faith because Mitt Romney's political consultants had kind of decided as a matter of campaign strategy not to talk to not to talk about his faith or at least to talk about it as little as possible. Mm -hmm. And I was like the annoying reporter who was constantly writing inconvenient stories about how his religion had shaped him because I I, I could tell that it had. Um but because of that, they never gave me access to him in 2012. Like, I never interviewed him. Hmm. And so I didn't actually interview him one-on-one -on -one until he got to the Senate in 2019. Um, and at that point, he was kind of in a different stage of his career. He wasn't trying to be president. And he was, a, I think, a little bit more in a mode of, like, being himself, being true to himself. So anyway, he talked to me. When I pitched him on this, doing this book, uh, he actually told me, and it was kind of funny given our history, I, I think it's an advantage that you get the Mormon thing. <laughs> and <laughs> I didn't totally know what he meant at the time, um, except that, you know, the obvious, like, yeah, I, I understand kind of the context in which he grew up and some of his beliefs and value system. But it also ended up being true that um, I understood him 
in in a certain way that I don't know if other even other Latter Day Saints who had grown up, for example, in Utah would have. So he he we, both he and I grew up members of the church in places where there weren't a lot of members. Um, he grew up in Michigan. I grew up in Massachusetts, and he said to me at one point. Uh, that, you know, growing up uh, in our faith outside of a place like Utah, you get used to being different in ways that are important to you. And I thought that was kind of a profound insight because that has sort of been the theme of his political career over the last several years. Like mm -hmm. he has been the sort of like lonely Republican in the Senate caucus lunches that nobody wants to sit with or talk to. And he's been often the only Republican voting to impeach Trump or speaking out uh, against, you know, what he considers the excesses of his party. And he has been different than a lot of his fellow Republicans, but it's in ways that he felt were important. And I think he drew from his experience growing up a member of the faith uh, of our faith in a place like Michigan. And I think that I innately understood that in a way because we were we were had both had that experience if that makes sense yeah for sure would you think that there are any uh disadvantage maybe a little bit harder for you to pinpoint if there's any sort of disadvantages with you writing it as opposed to maybe someone that had no idea about the faith well, well the, i mean one one obvious disadvantage is that and and i because i've been writing about our faith for national you know for national publications for a long time i feel like i've gotten pretty good at explaining things in a way that's accessible to non-members. But it, it, it's still, there were things that like my editor, who's not, you know, a Latter-day Saint, would come across in the book and be like, so wait, what's going on? So I remember one of the first things was he did not, it, he had the hardest time, even after several versions of trying to rewrite it in a way that made sense. He, my, my editor had the hardest time understanding like the mechanics of a, a Mormon mission. Like I wrote <laughs> about Mitt Romney's mission to France. And I think because... Other faiths, when they talk about missions, they're usually like two week missions or three month missions at sure. most. Right. Like he he had a really hard time understanding. Like, so hang on. So he took two and a half years off college to do this. Like, I really don't think this that's clear. And so, you know, there were a few different times like that where I had to kind of check my own knowledge of his, you know, faith experience and uh, and then try to kind of iron it out and make it presentable and accessible to to a non-Mormon audience. So that that probably if there was a disadvantage, that might have been it. You know, uh, as I uh, I would say read, but I listen to books. I'm, I'm sorry that sure. I don't read them. I'm making that public <laughs> apology. It is much easier for me to <laughs> Are go. Are you apologizing to me? You don't yes. have to apologize. As no, long as you some... bought the audio book, I'm happy. <laughs> yeah, there's something There's something I, I think that some people would say about, uh, you know, sitting peacefully with a written word and all that. And I'm like, sure, sure. on the treadmill, in my ear, let's do it this way. You know, those kind of things. Um, but, but listening to it, there is a lot of reckoning. I mean, to use the title of the book, it, is there one particular reckoning uh, that was that was um, you know in mind when when titling the book, or is it just because there is so much reckoning of like you know Mitt and his faith, him and his father, him and his family? Mm -hmm. Like, there's so much of that. Was there one in particular? Not really. I mean, I think it has more to do with his general the the general approach he took to you know talking to me throughout. Uh, the process of working on this book. I mean, when I approached him uh, about writing his biography, it was 
uh, actually early 2021. And we were a few weeks removed from kind of a very contentious presidential campaign that ended in, you know, a, a riot at the U.S. Capitol that Mitt Romney actually was there for. Um, and he was going through kind of a a process that I could just tell from the outside, having know, gotten to know him and, you know, written about him, I could tell he was going through something. Like he was asking himself difficult questions about what was happening to the country, whether he had kind of misunderstood what his his party was all about. Um, you know, a lot of the people who were cheering on what happened on January 6th were people who had not long ago been his supporters when he <laughs> ran for president. And so I think he was just asking himself a lot of difficult questions. And, and as a biographer, that's like the best place that your subject can be in because they're introspective, they're soul searching, they're willing to be vulnerable. And um, and so the the reckoning, I think, has to do with a few different things. Like you said, it has to do with um, him taking stock of his own career, where he may have made mistakes, regrets he had, where he uh, where he felt like maybe he had compromised or rationalized. Um, that's one of the main themes of the book. And then there's also a reckoning about kind of the state of American democracy. Like he's very concerned about um the the fragility of the American project. He has I, I write at the beginning of the book about this this map that he has on the wall of his Senate office that um it's called the histo map and it charts the rise and fall of the most powerful civilizations throughout human history. So you have like the Greeks and the Romans and the Assyrians and the Egyptians and um and he had when he first hung that on his wall, it was 2019 when he first got to the Senate, and he kind of thought of it as like an interesting thing to show visitors. And after January 6th, he kind of became obsessed with it. And I remember when he showed it to me in one of our first interviews, he was like, you know, look at look at this map, look at all of human history, look at how rare it is for democracy to be thriving, right? Almost all of the most powerful civilizations in human history are like authoritarian regimes of some kind. You have emperors and kings and kaisers and people who rule over their subjects with an iron fist. And the what he told me was the American experiment in self-rule, where we choose our leaders and they're accountable to us, is actually like an anomaly in human history. And we have all taken it for granted as like, of course, this is the best form of government and it's going to last forever. Mm -hmm. But his his takeaway from the last several years of politics is that, uh, that American democracy is much more fragile than we realize. And if we want to preserve it, we have to fight for it. And so that I think is the other main reckoning going on in the book. You know, uh, when I've heard uh, in other interviews where you talk about how you know, you, you come to him with this project and you're like, but I'm not going to pull any punches. And he's like, in his Romney ways, like, I insist on it. And then it almost becomes <laughs> like, a, like, a, I dare you, you betcha. And then if if I understand right and how you've spoken about it, 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 the book could almost be like Wednesdays with Mitt, right? Where you guys sit down, you get yeah. together once a week and he's like, you know what the problem is? And that's what it is sometimes. And other times it's like, oh, let's go back to where we were and talk about how I felt in that time. H how is that uh, interchange, that, that exchange you'd been following for so long and now you get complete unfettered access to him and all his writings? Yeah, I mean, it, that that last part was like the most jarring thing for me, because like, think of some a, a public figure that you're just extremely interested in, right? Like a celebrity athlete, whoever that you followed for a decade plus. Um, like, 
you naturally always wonder like what are they really thinking like what mm -hmm. was this moment like what you know when this famous thing happened and they kind of gave their very like brief talking pointy statement and then like retreated like what was really going on behind the scenes all of a sudden I had access to all of that. Like mm -hmm. he, because one of the very first things he did was hand over all of his journals, which, you know, he, he went, he's been through periods of his life where he kept very detailed journals. Um, and his presidential campaign in 2012 was one of them. And it was so interesting for me uh, to have been a reporter on that campaign and written stories from the outside, just being in the kind of press area at his rallies and on the back of the bus to now be reading like these very intimate journals where he would vent about the frustrations of the day or really take himself to task for some gaffe that he had committed or, you know, think through who should my running mate be? Uh, do I have to fire my consultants? Like, you know, all these, uh, all, all these like really unfiltered thoughts that he was just putting into his journal every day, you know, the dynamics between him and his wife and him and his kids, like it, it was kind of, almost startling, but also so interesting to me to have access to all of that. And it, it's funny, the first time I probably like shouldn't confess this in um, on your podcast in particular, yeah. but when he first sent me the first like kind of chunk of his his journals, I was actually at church. It was on a Sunday. Yeah. And he, like, just, he just texted me and he was like, hey, McKay, before our next meeting, this might be interesting for you to review. And I like looked at it and it was like all of his personal journals. And and the first entry was the first entry he wrote after losing the 2012 presidential election. Oh, wow. Where he was like processing his feelings about it. And I like will admit to you and your audience that I did not pay very close attention to Sunday school that day. Like I immediately was just reading it on my phone and was like completely absorbed. Like, and so that, that I mean, that part of it was really strange, but also felt like such a privilege because Mitt Romney, especially, but this is true of a lot of politicians and political figures, like the, he was just very guarded throughout his whole political career. So to finally kind of see behind the scenes um, was really fascinating. And I wanted the book to have that intimate feeling for readers to feel like they were going behind the scenes. Like there's been a lot of stuff in the press about like the juicy revelations and the things that he said about various Republicans. But like, I think that actually reading the book is a different experience because there's a lot that hasn't been covered in the press. That's just, I, if you're interested in Mitt Romney, I think you'll be interested in what, what he had to say during these periods. Uh, a thing that has particularly uh, struck me as I've been listening uh, to know that he has a temper. Here, I think that this is a, a, a very polished, and we we maybe have seen a little bit of these things in uh, in the more recent past, where you see him sort of say something to um, the Republican, uh, you know, where he says you shouldn't be here or something like oh, that. Oh yeah, George Santos. Yeah, George yeah, Santos, yeah. <laughs> and some of these other things where he's just not been able to contain it. But to know that that's something that he has struggled with. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't have any idea. And it was fun to hear of those encounters. He keeps he he's really good at kind of hiding it publicly, right? Like you don't get the sense that he's somebody who has a temper. But it's funny because people around him uh, that I interviewed for this book, like would all have different like angry mitt stories, you know? <laughs> and, yeah. and, and, you know, like one of them was um, when he was running for governor of Massachusetts, he was doing, uh, they had to do these mock debates where they would kind of do practice debates with his advisors uh, to prepare for the real thing against his Democratic opponent. And he hated mock debates. Like he hated them so much because what it is basically is you stand up 
there's somebody uh, at the other podium playing your opponent. In this case, it was Beth Myers, his longtime advisor. And her job is to try to rattle him, right? Yeah. Her job is to like get get under her skin, get under his skin, like get fluster him so that when the real debate happens, he doesn't get flustered. And so what she said her strategy was is that she like spent a lot of time studying his Democratic opponent's talking points so that she knew what talking points to to use when a question would come up. But then she would end every answer by just saying something mean about him, like yeah. just kind of like needling him in some way. And he got so mad every time. And at one point, he actually threw his notes on the floor. And he said, if this is what it's going to be like, I might as well not even show up because I'm going to lose this election. Yeah. He, he just got like really angry. And then he would like calm down and kind of like, you know, gather his notes and like go back to work. Right. And and he is somebody who I think like he can get heated up and, and angry, but then he cools down quickly too. And he'll apologize. Like, you know, even he and I like had a couple contentious, uh, you know, conversations where he would like send a text after kind of being like, I'm sorry if that got a little too heated. And I mean, I will say as somebody who covered politicians for a long time, like the <laughs> people get a lot more heated than him and <laughs> use much more like foul language than he does. Like his, the Mitt Romney version of losing your temper is different than a lot of other politicians, but, but he does, he has this temper and, but he's tried to control it. And I write in the book that he's kind of like his persona is like this amalgam of Mormon niceness and prep school manners and like the kind of practiced cool of the private equity set like yeah. it's kind of all, every world that he's been in prioritizes like controlling your temper not showing too much emotion and that's why his per, per, public persona has been defined by that but it's also why like seeing the temper uh behind the scenes or getting accounts of it i think are also revealing you know one of the things that that also sort of uh permeates throughout the book is not like he's trying to make amends uh for for his father not winning but that like he has to prove the Romney name. It seems very yeah. much that there is a Romney means that you are a this and a Romney yeah. means oh, that definitely. you are a this. Tell me a little bit more about that and some of the things that you learned what a Romney is and what a Romney isn't. Yeah, so he, first of all, I should say, like idolizes his dad. His dad, George Romney, governor of Michigan, an auto executive in Detroit in the 1950s and 60s. He ended up um, running for president and he was kind of a liberal Republican. He was a proponent of civil rights um, and he got crushed uh, in part because of like a gaffe he had committed about Vietnam. But um, he his dad, his dad to Mitt is like the embodiment of integrity and in public service. Like he thought his dad would have been a great president, was like a profoundly, you know, moral man. And the fact that he didn't become president, I think, was one of the great disappointments of not just George Romney's life, but Mitt's life. And so in a lot of ways, Mitt's own political career um, was, you know, again, not I don't think it was trying to fulfill his father's unfinished legacy necessarily, but I think there might have been shades of that. Right. But yeah, I mean, the way he talks about the Romney family uh, there are a couple things like one of them is stubbornness. Stubbornness is like a, a running theme of the 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 Romney family history. There's a saying in the in the family um, that uh, <laughs> that we didn't descend. Uh, Romneys aren't like normal people. We descended from the mule. And, and there's <laughs> there's another one about Romneys kind of swimming upstream. They 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 swim against the tide. It says uh, if um, 
you know, if a Romney drowns, look for his body upstream. And, and there's like all these stories throughout the, his family history about um, various Romney men kind of doubling down on what they thought was right in the face of like enormous pressure not to. George Romney is, an, is one example. He, uh, in 1964 at the Republican National Convention, refused to endorse Barry Goldwater, who was the nominee of the party at that time, because he thought that he was an extremist. Um, and he got booed by the audience and, and all that. Um, but you can even go all the way back to Miles Romney, um, who was the first Romney man to convert to, to Mormonism. He, he was a British carpenter, I believe, uh, moved to Utah, uh, went to work for the church. And um, there's this story about how he, he was an architect, uh, uh, carpenter. He was assigned to design the St. George Tabernacle. And um, he, came, he he designed... He had this idea for like this grand spiral staircase at the center of the tabernacle that would lead up to the dais where where the speakers would speak from. And Brigham Young came and saw uh, what he was doing. And he was like, that's going to be too high. The dais is going to be too far away from the rest of the people in the tabernacle. You need to cut this down. And Miles Romney just refused. Like he was like, no, this, you know, yeah, he, he had this vision for the grand spiral staircase and he said no. And Brigham Young insisted and they were kind of like came head to head. And if you look at the St. George Tabernacle now, you still have the grand staircase and then it comes down 10 feet like it goes up and then down so that the day is where Brigham Young wanted but they didn't lose the staircase and it kind of speaks to like the stubbornness of a Romney man who who uh you know thinks that he's right about something and I think that Mitt did take a lot of these lessons from his family history and apply them to his own life the the other one I should mention really quickly is something called something he calls the Romney obligation um Mitt believes that like throughout his family's history, there's this like almost genetic disposition to want to rush toward a crisis. Like when something is going wrong, you should be there to fix it. Like the the Romneys feel this this need to go, you know, solve the problem. And uh, Mitt certainly has fallen back to that multiple times throughout his life when he decided to go take over the Salt Lake Olympics when they were in trouble. Uh, when he ran for governor of Massachusetts, the state was in a fiscal crisis and he took took over the state at that point. And he's always kind of felt this need to, uh, you know, go toward the emergency and uh, and try to fix it. And part of it is is noble. It's, you know, the, this kind of public spirited ob sense of obligation. But it's also and he told he talked about this. He gets an adrenaline rush from it like he sure. he likes to be in the center of, you know, uh, of what's going on in the middle of the action. And I think that's part of why when Donald Trump was elected and Washington became like extremely divisive and contentious and chaotic, he decided to come out of retirement and run for Senate because he, he saw a crisis that he could possibly help with. Hi friends, Dan the Laptop Man here from PC Laptops. Our lifetime service guarantee has become the most trusted warranty in the industry. You can get a brand new PC Laptops desktop computer and they start at only $29 a month. Check us out at PCLaptops.com. BestDJinUtah.com. You're right, it's a new ad. What? Well, it's been an entire season since I've recorded a BestDJinUtah.com ad. And well, 
the wedding season coming to an end at this point, but not really because what happens now is everyone who's going to get married in 2024 reaches out and says, Richie, is it possible? Do you still have this date? And I tell them, yes, hopefully. And then we get you booked. We'd love to be able to work with you. Uh, travel all along the Intermountain West. Some people call it the Jello Belt. Uh, you can go to bestdjinutah.com to request a quote. You can find us on any of the social medias at bestdjinutah. And uh, we can answer any questions. Affordable? Yes. Over 400 five-star reviews? Yes. Highest rated in the state of Utah? Uh-huh. Go on. It's best djinutah.com and I'll give you a little hint. It also helps me to be able to do this, like financially support the cultural hall through that and you get something in return. Imagine running a small business today. It's challenging. Imaging and internet presence is an absolute must. Even with that, you're still a small star in a bright cyber universe. Now, imagine you have someone who understands how to get your site designed for your talents and then easily searched by potential clients. Imagine Lennon Design. Whether it's strictly a website or a whole package of logo creation, advertising media, and promotional materials, Lennon Design is your partner in business. They'll test the boundaries of their imagination to create something unique for you. When you need creative affordable design, let it be Lennon Design. Call 801-699-3022 or visit LennonDesign.com. So much of uh, what it seems like he finds himself in as well as at the uh, the urging of his wife. They have a unique mm -hmm. relationship in that respect. One in that he almost trusts her more than he trusts himself. And you, you, it almost is like sickening, sickeningly sweet where he dotes on her and, you know, oh, and, you know, whatever she says, you know, the smart the woman... De is it is it really all that as in your observation of visiting with him it, it, it is totally real it, it's funny because i had seen the version of their marriage that was portrayed on the campaign trail in 2012 and what's funny is that throughout romney's political career the the way they portrayed their marriage actually sometimes was a problem for him because voters would look at it and feel like it was phony, like it yeah. was inauthentic, like they were skeptical of it. There was an ad that they that his campaign ran in when he was running for governor of Massachusetts, where Mitt and Ann tell the story of their teenage courtship. They were high school sweethearts. And there's kind of this cloying, twinkling piano music in the background. And there's like inner it's intercut with like pictures of them as kids and and voters hated it it was so bad that there was like data that showed that when voters watched the ad they actually liked Mitt Romney less which is <laughs> not not what you want from a, a, a campaign ad but it's because people thought it was sort of phony and plastic and the irony is that that's really what they're like together like he has so much affection for for Anne but also in some ways like it, it seems like he's he's never stopped trying to win her approval and respect and at almost every important stage of his career Anne was the one steering him in any given direction so it was Anne's idea for him to take over the olympics in salt lake city Anne wanted him to run for governor of massachusetts um at very he, she was there at various points during two both of his presidential campaigns um and even uh just a few years ago when Mitt Romney was weighing which way to vote on the impeachment uh, trial for Donald Trump, um, at one point, Romney was kind of leaning more toward voting to acquit with the rest of the Republicans, kind of letting Trump off the hook. And when he called Ann to let her know that that's what he, which way he was leaning, uh, Ann 
all she said was, I'm surprised by that. <laughs> and she didn't render any judgment. She didn't like, you know, argue with him or anything. But in his journal, he immediately wrote like, oh man, I got to go back to the drawing board. Like, I got to reconsider this. Like, Anne doesn't seem happy with this or, or doesn't think that this is right. So now I have to rethink everything. And so it really speaks to how much he respects her and and her take on things. And I mean, I, I should say, I, I also have seen them together and interviewed them together uh, several times throughout the course of this book. And they really do have like a, a it's a sweet relationship, but it's also like a very, like, a, a serious one that seems built on mutual respect. Like he often defers to her. He doesn't do that thing that you sometimes see powerful men do where they like cut off their wives or correct them. Like mm -hmm. he never does that. Like mm -hmm. he really like listens to her. Let's like get, lets her have her full say, uh, even in settings where people are more there to see him. Like it, it is a, it's a, it's a real serious partnership. It's a fascinating thing when you consider Mitt Romney uh, within, you know, I live here in the state of Utah, so I probably even see this more where, um, you know, it, it, he seems to be a man uh, of principles, uh, one that he does the things that he he feels like he should or or that are best and then, you know, uh, doesn't do those those things that he does, you know, that he doesn't feel like he should. He tries to be true to who he is and and what he feels like constituents want. And there are a lot of people in this state who hate him, think that he's uh, just, you know, he's a, you know, Republican in name only and that he had to come to Utah to be this thing. And and it seems so fascinating. So maybe from the inside of the church, it seems so fascinating to have so much hatred for an individual whom we align air quotes so much with in, in some ways. But then when we actually see them do the things that we want them to do or that we think a politician should do, if it's not the thing that we wanted them to do, we immediately yeah. shun them. Yeah, it's funny because this is one of the things that I wanted to show in this in this book, because I think you can disagree with a lot of things Mitt Romney has done or positions he's taken in good faith. Like, I think reasonable people can disagree on on both the kind of very conservative positions he took earlier in his career or the, uh, you know, this latest kind of chapter of his career where he's repeatedly stood up as like a dissident in the Trump's Republican Party. I, I think you can disagree reasonably. But I think that there's this line of criticism against him especially from, you know, more conservative Republicans in Utah and elsewhere, that he doesn't, you know, that he's all in all of this for himself, right? That like mm -hmm. he he's either vindictive and he doesn't like Donald Trump and that's why he's, you know, acting the way he is, or he just wants praise from the New York Times and, you know, the Atlantic and MSNBC and, uh, and he, he's just kind of enjoying the mainstream media praise and that's it. And like, I can tell you with certainty from reading his journals throughout the last several years, reading his email correspondence, interviewing him more than 40 times over two years, that like he he takes his role as a senator and as a political figure very seriously. And he takes these decisions he makes very seriously. And he often agonizes over them. He prays about them. He like steeps himself in scripture. He's like thinking about hymns, he's, you know, consulting the people in his life, like he really wants to make the right decision. And it's not just to make friends in liberal Washington. And it's not just to, uh, you know, secure his place in the history books or whatever, like, he he is honestly, especially in these last few years, his only consideration for the most part 
has been what he thinks is the right thing to do. And you can you can disagree that he came with the conclusions he came to, but I hope that people who read this book will see that he is is going about this in a pretty deliberative way. And um and, and the reason that I hope that that I think that's important is not because I think it's personally important that everybody likes Mitt Romney. Like that's sure. you know that's not really why I wrote this book. It's more that I think that we should expect our political leaders to do what he is doing more often. Like, I think we have all internalized this idea in the last seven or eight years, especially that like all politicians are snakes and all of them are just acting in their own self-interest and they're Machiavellian and, you know, maybe even sociopathic. <laughs> and, you know, all we should do is, you know, expect them to act in their own self-interest and vote for the ones who uh, we agree with most, right? And I just think that's fundamentally wrong. Like, I think that actually most politicians came went into office with a set of ideals and principles and that and and functioning consciences. And we should expect political leaders sometimes to do what they think is right, even when it's politically inexpedient. Like, even when it might mean the end of their political career. Like in the case of Mitt Romney, I think that we should expect them to act on their conscience. And, it, you know, that lesson only comes through if you believe that <laughs> that political leaders actually do have a conscience. And I think what you see if you read this book is a man who is genuinely wrestling with his conscience often throughout his political career. And I think that's a good thing. You know, it's also interesting because uh, you, you see him uh, equated, I can't remember where it was, but to Guy Smiley from Sesame Street, the uh, the uh, puppet that always has the smile on his face and everything like that, and, and never never utters a, an ill word. But the, the book, his journals, your writings um, do bring up for a lot of people uh, the Romney side of the Romney Huntsman uh, everything, oh, yeah. and, and you just are like, oh... For everything that was downplayed, like, oh, man, that's not a thing. It is so very much a thing for yeah. Mitt Romney. The, the Romney-Huntsman rivalry is real. Um, it, it's a family rivalry, so it's not just about Mitt and John Jr. But Mitt and John Jr., I think it's fair to say, do not, you know, especially like each other. You know, it, it goes, you know, I write about it repeatedly throughout the book. Like, it goes back to the 90s when... Um, Mitt took the Olympics job and John Huntsman Sr. publicly attacked Mitt Romney kind of out of nowhere. And I write about Mitt going to see John Huntsman Sr. and kind of being like, what's up? Like, why, why, why are you so mad at me? And it turns out that Huntsman was trying to get John Jr. that job. He wanted John Jr. to take over the Olympics. He thought it would kind of set, set up his, his own political career. And the fact that they went with Mitt Romney kind of, you know, irked him. And that was just one of several times over the next, you know, 25 years um, in which uh, they were just constantly running into each other. Right. You know, um, that when Mitt ran for president in 2008, uh, John Jr., according to Mitt, uh, promised that he would not make an endorsement in the primaries because he was friendly with both Mitt and, and John McCain. And then John Jr. came out and endorsed McCain and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Mitt called him and kind of chewed him out and, and said, you know, your grandfather would be rolling over in his grave because their their families had known each other for a long time. And, and it even goes up through when they both ran for president in 2012. Mitt's journals are filled with kind of like little snide comments on on John Jr.'s flailing presidential campaign. Um, you know, I, I think that it, it sometimes is the case that two people are just like 
thrust into a position where they're often at odds with each other, right? Um, <laughs> but there is also like a kind of like, you know, Mormon royalty like thing going on there. Like the Romneys and Huntsmans are two big names in Latter-day Saint political history, right? And uh, they uh, they they just don't seem to care for each other. I, I will say I was surprised because I had always heard that they didn't like each other that much. And you could right, right. sort of see it, right? Like, but but I never knew for sure. And then reading his journals and like it, it became very apparent very quickly, like, oh, yeah, they really don't like each other. <laughs> you know, uh, we've only got a couple more minutes uh, together. And I guess I would be curious, you know, it, as you mentioned and as, and as uh, Anne assesses about Mitt, you know, he loves an emergency. He loves a, a crisis and loves to do that. And, you know, not running again for Senate. He's no longer going to be the senator from the state of Utah. There's still a lot of emergencies and crises. You know, mm -hmm. there's still a lot he can do. Do we think we're going to see him in in some sort of maybe more local forum, or or, or will we see him in a in a uh, in a different sort of posture within the, the public light? Or is he saying, "Here, someone else take the torch"? I'm me and Anne. We got some visiting to do. We got a home in La Jolla. We're good. <laughs> well, so they. It, it, I don't know what he'll do, but I will say that the last time he tried to retire after his 2012 campaign, he was going crazy. <laughs> like his journals, he writes constantly during that period about how restless he is and, uh, you know, how he feels like he's not getting anything done. He's he's useless, you know. And so I would I would bet that he's not going to just kind of disappear from public life altogether. Um, he does want to spend more time with Anne, you know, both of them they're they're in their 70s i know they look young and healthy and vigorous but they're they're concerned about their health and obviously has multiple sclerosis so they want to spend their good years together they want to spend time with their kids and grandkids but i i would imagine he will continue to be a voice in politics and i would be curious about if something comes up in utah or in the church that you know where mitt romney could be of help uh i had one person float the idea to me, kind of a prominent person in Utah, that he should take over the next Utah Olympics, the next Salt Lake City Olympics. Interesting. <laughs> um, and I mean, by the time that 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 it happens, if Salt Lake City gets it, he would be, I think, like 80. So that, that might be kind of a, a stretch. But I mean, I, he could be a very helpful, you know, person in that uh, in that world. I, I have no inside knowledge that like Mitt is interested in that. But I, I thought that was an interesting idea. But I think he'll want to stay busy. So I, I don't think this is the last we've heard from him. Do you think that there's any likelihood, and this is uh, where you're perfect being another member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, to be able to speculate on something like this, uh, that there would be a prominent point of church service that Mitt could be called to? Or is he too stigmatized as a political figure that the church would be walking into something that they couldn't control? Yeah, I mean, I, I have no idea. I would sometimes make jokes to him about that. Like, hey, you know, well, this is just in time for you to get, you know, called as a general authority or uh, or maybe you, you'd take over BYU or something like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, and he would always kind of like laugh it off and be like, oh, you don't know anything about how church service works, obviously, <laughs> you know, I, I honestly have no idea. But, I, you know, I write in the book that like he was especially after 2012. He was approached a few different times by general authorities about different projects he might be able to take on for the church. And one of them was like forming a Latter-day Saint corollary to the Anti-Defamation League, which hmm. he ultimately he looked into and then ultimately decided wasn't the best use of the church's resources because he thought 
the, the the main threats to the church were not kind of outside misinformation, but rather like retaining, you know, the, the most important things were retaining young members and dealing with our own history in a productive way. So anyway, but I, I could see, you know, other kind of special projects being brought to him that he could he he could be exceptionally well placed to to deal with. I, I will say he is definitely very serious about the church, very serious about his faith. That comes through, I think, throughout the the book. And uh, there's a there's a piece in Deseret Magazine, Deseret News is a monthly magazine that uh, kind of excerpts some of the faith related stories from the book that I'd urge people to check out. But it's it's a like he definitely wants to help the church in any way he can. And so uh, I'll be interested to see if that happens. A question I'm sure that you've been asked a bunch of times, but uh, if there was a thing that surprised you the most, either from his journals or visiting with him, something that you're like, whoa, I would have never seen that coming or didn't know about this at all, what would that be? I, I got into it a little earlier about um, how hard he is on himself. And I think that that, that was one of the shocking things to me. And in, in 2012, so the, just one example, after the that tape leaked of him t talking about 47% of Americans who didn't pay income tax and, you know, were never going to vote for him, it, this was like a big controversy in the campaign. It almost feels quaint now in retrospect, given <laughs> all the crazy things that other politicians say, but this was a big deal in the campaign. And I was struck, you know, at the time he kind of defended himself halfway and like halfway apologized and tried to move on. In his journals, he was like exceptionally hard on himself to the point where he, people around him actually worried that he was like clinically depressed. Like for mm. weeks after, he 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 would write about how in his journals about how he couldn't sleep and he couldn't eat, and you know he would ride ride the uh, go on the elliptical at like a punishing pace, you know, to try to get his mind off everything. And um, he he would write in his journal like, I can't believe I was so stupid. How could I have done this? I've let so many people down. Um, and and actually, I report in the book that six weeks before the election, he called up the chief strategist of his campaign late at night and floated the idea of dropping out of the race because wow. he thought that he had just blown it. And I think that that speaks to how hard he can be on himself, but also the sense of responsibility he feels like, you know, in, in those journal entries, I haven't really talked about this that much, but I, I one of the most impressive things is that, you know, the conservative press kind of wrote a bunch of stories around that time saying he needs to fire all of his consultants and his campaign strategists and start over. Like his campaign is a disaster, fire everybody, bring in new people, try to turn this thing around. And Mitt was just adamant that like his consultants weren't the ones to blame. His campaign staff was to, wasn't the one to blame. In his journal, he would write, I'm the problem, not them. Hmm. And I think that also speaks to kind of the loyalty he has to the people around him. And I think that that's, you know, admirable in a lot of ways. I have to tell you, the thing that I thought was most surprising is that uh, he got like a special session of the temple. I thought that oh, was yeah. significant. His buddy, the temple president, was like, yeah, yeah do a late night session. Come on the, in. The Boston Temple. Yeah. Ken Hutchins, I think, was the um, was the the temple president back then. But yeah, basically, you know, Mitt was uh, running for president. He couldn't go to the temple in kind of normal hours. And so, yeah, they opened up the temple for him at night so he and his family could go do a special session. And it, it was, I think, a really meaningful experience for him because, you know, whatever else you think of Mitt Romney, like he did, you know, waffle on some issues and took different positions. His faith was always non-negotiable. And 
I, I, you know, there were times when consultants of his told him, like, you should distance yourself from Mormonism. This is, really isn't helping you politically. And he just flatly refused. That was never on the table. So, yeah, I th the temple story was, I thought, really interesting. Yeah. You know, uh, our time has expired. If people uh, want to get the book that we've been chatting so much about, it's called Romney Reckoning. You can find a link to it in the show notes to be able to purchase it. Uh, McKay Coppins, we appreciate you taking the time to be with us. Uh, I'm not your editor, but I have your next project for you if you would like to. Oh, tell me right this now. Down, if you wouldn't mind, I think that it would be fascinating to suss out more of those Romneys in the past. And it's Romney a Reckoning Part Two, and it goes into you know, more about the the Romney and the St. George Tabernacle and about yeah. some of those people. I'm telling you, I think that there there is, you know, you, you you approach the Romney family and say, hey, will you fund this? It I I think there are lessons to be learned by our Romney ancestors. And there I, are a lot of fascinating stories. I get into just a little bit in the book, but his dad was born in like a polygamist colony in Mexico. I'm telling you. Like there there are a lot of interesting stories in the Romney family. Oh, I'll write it down. Maybe I'll con I'll call my agent after this. It seems like a feast for someone like yourself. Uh, McKay, I hope this episode has nourished and strengthened your body, that if you're not healthy enough to listen this week, that you'll be healthy enough to listen next week. And then when the time comes, you'll be able to travel home in safety. In the meantime, Chris at Alpine Lakes Travel, Rick McGee, Debbie Wanless, and Chocolate Cake Bites Podcast. We'll be saving a seat for you on the back row of the Cultural Hall. Save me a seat, it's sure to be neat on the back row.